name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. While last week we had a political satire comedy, this is sort of... I can't really figure out what genre this is. It's sci-fi... I think it's like a psychological thriller. Yeah? Yeah? I would say that's what Wikipedia says. I, I'd say we watched Cube, or The Cube in certain regions. But first we're going to get into what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. I have at the top of here three movies that I saw in cinemas that I'm ready to talk about. The first of them is Unhinged, which is a thriller directed by Derek Borte. It's about a a woman named Rachel Hunter. She's played by Karen Pistorius. She gets into an altercation with a stranger, played by Russell Crowe, at an intersection, not knowing that he's a psycho who just killed his ex-wife. And he snaps and pursues her throughout the city. This is utterly ridiculous, but it's, it's generally entertaining with a nasty streak. It's bitter in tone. There's that, there's sort of an angry white male element. You know, it's very much keyed in to, to that kind of element of what's going on in the in the culture f- over the last few years. And one has to wonder how intentional the casting of Russell Crowe is, given the, you know, the, the, of course, the infamous phone-throwing episode, whether his sort of, his own little moment of, of snapping in public is intentionally played into in his casting of this film. But this this guy that he's playing, he thinks his life is a nothing, and he just cracks. But it's it's nasty on a more visceral level. Crow's character is sadistic in a way that's usually reserved for horror villains. He tracks down friends and family of this woman and calls her while he tortures them. It goes to some real dark places that is boosted by the general tone of the world right now. It's not really trying to say anything either. I suppose... Um, I don't know, the overall message here might be don't beep your horn at strangers at intersections. They might be lunatics who'll try to murder you, which is good advice. Yeah. The movie doesn't seem to be attempting to say anything more than that. At the same time, it's absurd and over the top. I mean, the lengths to which this guy goes to are just ridiculous. He has these bizarrely convoluted schemes that he apparently improvises on the fly that spreads mayhem the whole way across the city, in set pieces that are both small and large. These set pieces, they're well staged and they're appropriately tense, but they they play things with a melodramatic tilt. Crow's Stranger is a ranting, monologuing villain. His frequent threatening phone calls to Rachel keep the tension ratcheted up in the downtime as she scrambles around the city trying to stop him. And the movie comes up with increasingly weak reasons why she doesn't just go to a police station. Uh, This is not really a chase movie. When I saw the trailer for it, I thought it might be like that Halle Berry movie, The Call, where Mm. it's sort of always in transit, and it isn't. There's, There's quite a few sequences where you know cars are parked and they're moving in and out and you know moving around on foot it's not just bumper to bumper for 90 minutes it's more involved than that and it becomes more involved than that in an increasingly insane way Uh, crow and pistorius are both very good and, and jimmy simpson makes an impact in a supporting role gabriel bateman is a strong child actor who's who's playing Rachel's son. Gabriel Bateman was the kid in Lights Out and in the Child's Play remake. 
Yes. He played Andy. Yeah, uh-huh. he's he's a strong actor. He's he's good at doing what the movie needs him to do. The movie and the stranger use him as a motivator for Rachel, and Bateman is effective at that. It, it's really over the top, but enjoyably so. It, it's likely too angry a movie for some people. However, I would caution. I next watched Force of Nature, which is an action movie directed by Michael Polish, and. When a hurricane approaches Puerto Rico, new police partners Cardillo, Emil Hirsch, and Peña, Stephanie Kao, go to do wellness checks and evacuate stragglers who are refusing to leave their homes. They end up at an apartment complex where there's a retired cop named Ray, who's played by Mel Gibson, and he's refusing to leave despite his daughter Troy's pleas. She's played by Kate Bosworth. They soon find themselves stuck there in the middle of a hurricane and under siege after an armed gang of thieves attack the place looking for paintings stolen by Nazis that have come into the possession of another resident. (laughs) When we were at the cinema seeing you mutants and you were going to see this film, you explained the concept of this film to me as... Mel Gibson fights a hurricane, I believe were your words. Oh, I was being flippant, but that would have been a much better, much better premise than this. Angry old man shakes fist at the weather. No, it's quite literally, old man shakes fist at cloud. Yeah. This is moronic and deadly dull. Despite these bizarre elements like Nazi paintings and a tiger that is kept as a pet in a spare bedroom... The movie wants us to take it seriously. That's a mistake because it isn't very interesting. It's it's a by-the-numbers action movie with thinly drawn characters and cheesy dialogue. All of the characters have these these basic traits that are used to define them. We spend the most time on Cardillo. He's the lead, and we start the movie seeing him incorrectly shoot and kill someone. We will later learn that it is his police partner who is also his fiance that he went in to investigate an apartment building that had a report of of someone with a gun running through it and he told his partner to stay outside and wait for backup but as he's investigating uh, she's come into the building anyway and she's come up through a different stairwell so he, he sees the barrel of the gun go around the corner shoots kills her without realizing it's her the movie takes a lot of pains to get us not to blame him. But there's also this one throwaway shot that seems to imply that he had taken drugs directly before that incident. Uh, it's never addressed, and I actually thought that I might have have misunderstood it, but that's the only way that I can read the particular shot of him putting a pill in his mouth <laughs> directly before going in there. And so it frames things so confusingly. And and because it, it, it tries to play the... Um, tries to play kind of a mystery and ambiguity about who it is that he's shot for a little too long as well. We don't actually find out that it's his partner until a good 20 minutes in the movie. So there's a good 20 minutes there that I thought that he had just killed a random civilian while he was high on drugs, which, you know, had me predisposed not to liking him. It's clumsy. It's a clumsy backstory and it's not well utilised. It could just as easily not have been in the movie at all. Again, this is a movie with Nazi paintings and tigers in bedroom closets in apartment complexes. I mean, pretty ballsy of Mel Gibson to be in a movie that explicitly states the existence of Nazi war crimes. 
It's it's a confused tone. Let's put it that way. These vague shadows of characters end up wandering around the apartment complex for an hour and a half, shouting over the rain and the wind, and every now and then firing guns at nondescript bad guys. It's not well staged, and it's not exciting. The actors are all overqualified. Does the tiger have a personality? No, he's. We only re- we only actually see the tiger in one shot, and he's entirely CGI. He's oh. he spends the rest of the time in a in a darkened closet growling off screen right is it like life of pi tiger cgi or titans tiger cgi you've gotta you've gotta keep in mind that this tiger's on screen for maybe a second and a half in the entire movie so titan cgi hirsch and kyo they're giving it their all and they're giving their characters personality but the script doesn't and bosworth has nothing to work with whatsoever gibson's okay but he's now apparently just relegated to making shitty action movies where he's third build behind Emil Hirsch and Kate Bosworth, of all people. Yeah. How the Mighty Have Fallen. This is a misfire. Of all the movies that had theatre releases dropped during this whole fiasco, this still made it. Yeah, it uh, re- wasn't worth holding off. This this is rightfully a straight-to-video movie, even if there wasn't a once-in-a-century global pandemic going on. Anyways, I next watched Made in Italy, which is a dramedy. It is the directorial debut of James Darcy, who you might know as an actor. He he played Edwin Jarvis in Agent Carter and reprised that role in Endgame as, as sort of a cameo. But he's also, he's he's a British character actor. You see him in quite a few things. He was in Broadchurch. He's, he's been in quite a number of things. But he will, this is his directorial debut, and he also wrote it. It's about an estranged father and son, Jack Foster. Michael Richardson plays him, and his dad, Robert, who's played by Liam Neeson. The mother died when Jack was seven, and, and now as a 20-something, he finds himself in need of money. So he and his father head to Italy to fix up his mother's family's dilapidated old villa to be sold. And they find themselves working out their familial issues, which stem back to the mother's death 20-odd years earlier. I was surprised by how much I liked this. I wasn't expecting to have as strong a reaction as I did. It's not a groundbreaking movie. I mean, you have a pretty good idea of how it'll end from the moment that it starts. It's very familiar in that sense. But it's the sort of warm and cosy film that gets away with being predictable as long as it brings enough heart, and it does. Jack begins to fall in love with an Italian woman named Natalia. She's played by Valeria Bolello, uh, because of course he does. And through that, he starts to get this new outlook on life. It's sweet, and it's nothing we don't see coming, but Bolello is is charming, and she and Richardson work well together. The much more serious work is done with the father-son dynamic. Richardson and Neeson are really great here, especially Neeson. He blows the doors off. His voice seems like he's getting more gravelly with age. Yeah, I know. It's great. And he looks... Great for a man that's approaching 70. It's really emotional stuff, and Neeson is particularly good at capturing real pain in his performance. It's impossible not to consider his real life when it comes to this, that his his own wife tragically died in a skiing accident, I want to say in 2009. During the production of the movie Chloe, which that film has sort of fraught family drama in it, Anyway, so... Yeah, it's 
it's it's impossible not to see that hanging over this whole movie and i have to conclude that it influenced his performance and the result is heartbreaking it's really good meat and potatoes interpersonal drama that's driven by emotional performances it's also frequently amusing not in, not in a guffaw kind of way but but in the way that has you smiling a lot and chuckling occasionally it I mean, it contributes to the pleasant tone of the thing and and it keeps the pace up with gentle humour. Neeson is again particularly impressive as the very deadpan Robert, but but the rest of the cast are all very capable with Darcy's script, which fluctuates between wordy comedy and emotional heavy lifting with a simple elegance. Darcy is also an impressive first-time director. He makes some really interesting choices, and there are some striking shot compositions. He, he also just makes this brilliant use of gorgeous Italian countryside, like that absolutely stunning, you know, wine country sort of... Oh, look. sort of Tuscany. Yeah, with the, hill, the hills and, and the villas and, the, you know, the whole sun-dapple yeah. thing. Uh, it, it, takes, it takes work to make that look bad. It doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it's so warm and ingratiating and just pleasant to watch that it more than makes up for that. It's exactly what it needs to be. And maybe I just needed a breather like this, given the current events that are going on in the world. In any case, I next watched at home Godzilla, the 1998 American Godzilla. That's That's a lot lot of fish. fish. I have opinions about this movie. It is it is directed <laughs> by Roland Emmerich, and it's based, of course, on the Toho film franchise. Anyways, at the, at the start of this movie, nuclear testing mucks with a iguana egg that hatches <laughs> Godzilla. He stomps over to New York to wreck up the place, and military and scientists, including Dr. Nick Totopoulos, played by Matthew Broderick, must find a way to stop him. Godzilla's a she in this. It lays eggs. No, they specific they refer to him as a he over and over and over again, even after they find out that he's laying eggs. Something about what 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 is it called when even the males can lay eggs of a species? It's the Jurassic Park frog shit. Yeah. Anyways. Just making sure that you're I'm not misgendering the giant iguana. <laughs> yes. That was the whole thing with Jurassic Park, so I'm just just making sure. This is an awful blockbuster of the dumbest order. It is impressively dull. Seriously, how do you make a movie about a 180-foot-tall lizard this boring? They managed it somehow. The pacing is so plodding and just leaden. There's no excitement at all. The, the chase scenes are rote and uncreative. They play like video game missions. There's no narrative tissue through any of them there's no reason to care godzilla's not even doing much really he's just chilling out in man on manhattan island looking terribly rendered i mean that's what people just do in manhattan so i don't know why the army's there to fight him they just hang out with you know total resolution exactly that's just manhattan in general Go to any major city in the world, you'll find just scary-looking people just sitting around looking grumpy, I've seen much sc- like Godzilla. I've seen scarier shit on the bus out of Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yes. <laughs> uh. 
We go through the same motions over and over. The military attacks Godzilla. Godzilla fights the military. We get a chase scene between Godzilla and the military that ends with the destruction of a major New York landmark. Thankfully, the Twin Towers are spared, although they do feature prominently in a lot of the uh, these shots. Of course, this being a 1998 movie. It's shockingly uninteresting. It's two hours and 20 minutes long. It could stand to lose at least 40, especially given the multiple false endings that it's got tacked to the back end of this thing. But hey, at least all that's better than the human drama. Nick is bad enough. He's played with a dim-witted naivete by Broderick that kind of makes him seem like a kid that's dressed up in his dad's clothes pretending to be a government scientist. But then we get his love interest, personal assistant and journalist wannabe Audrey Timmons. She's played by Maria Patillo. This is Patillo's only major role, and she stopped acting altogether a few years after the movie. I don't want to be unkind, but that seems like it might have been a good choice. She's really awful in this. She's kind of hard to watch. Broderick at least manages to approximate basic personality traits that resemble a human being, but... Patillo is just blank space on the screen. Unfortunately, we're subjected to an insipid romantic backstory for them that ends exactly as you'd expect, but why should we care about these people? And then there's the utterly immature decision to feature an idiot mayor named Mayor Ebert and his assistant Gene, this of course being a shot across the bow of critic Roger Ebert and his partner Gene Siskel on their, their their pretty famous American show. They had trashed Emmerich's previous films, and this was his childish attempt to get back at them. Ebert handled it quite well, I thought. He complained that he wanted, you know, why bother putting them into the movie at all if they didn't get stepped on by Godzilla? It was a waste of time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. If You can't even do that, right? If you're gonna swing at the king, you better not miss. The movie eventually just stops in its tracks to spend the third act worrying about Godzilla laying eggs in Madison Square Garden. A French Secret Service agent played by Jean Reno is here for some reason, and he teams up with Broderick to stop them. We get Jurassic Park light as all these mini Godzillas chase them around the place like raptors. It's somehow even more dull than the big Godzilla stuff. How is this what you come up with on your first time at bat creating a Godzilla movie? Like you're trying to make it, you're trying to make an American version of this franchise, and this is like your your go-to idea for the first attempt. This is like sequel number nine idea level. Like this yeah. is the stuff that you get to when you've run out of all of the good ideas. It's like, and it's not even scary. The super rats that live in the sewers of New York lay eggs in Madison Square Garden all the time. There's like rat kings all over the place there. You have very twisted opinions of places that are out of your own, outside of your own experience. You know that, no, right? Ob- obviously, I'm joking. But okay, here's my pitch for an American like, Godzilla movie. I mean, I've Just... I've noticed this, but you, like when we did Philadelphia, you spent this whole spiel talking about how Philadelphia was this sort of disease-ridden city, and I don't know where you got that from. I can't remember that. <laughs> But anyway, things just fly out with my pitch. My pitch for an American Godzilla film is you have Godzilla rock up to New York and you have him fight a purely American kaiju. Not like the Mutos in the new Godzilla, which actually is a good movie. A giant sewer rat. There's no rat kaiju, so. 
interesting that you say that. Toho, when they did, they of course were still making their own Godzilla movies. They did a finale movie that wrapped up that period of the continuity in, I think, 2002, where they had all of the different kaiju that had ever featured in a Godzilla movie come in, and Godzilla had to go around and save the world. And there was a kaiju named Zilla, who was this guy. Yeah, gets the shit kicked out of him. This is like Godzilla's Nightfall. And there's there's a there's apparently some dialogue reference to him in another one of the the Japanese movies where they say like oh yeah there was this giant lizard that popped up in in America a while back the Americans think it was Godzilla but the Japanese government says that's bullshit. Like- <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of Godzilla's PR people coming out and being like okay it's not it's not our Godzilla it's mm. it's not the giant lizard creature that we represent. Do you see atomic breath anywhere? No. no. I think they used it once. Once in the Oh, that's just cuz he's got bad breath. Yeah. It's not the Godzilla same. Godzilla is much wider. He's been he's been that Godzilla has been eating New Yorkers for like 2 days before Again, that. Where do you come up with <laughs> you have this very twisted view of of places you've never been to and people you've never met? I'm it's just, just saying, part of John's one-sided beef against New York. I do not have a beef against New York City. I would love to visit there when the world isn't trying to kill me. But what I'm trying to say is that New York famously is filled with rats. Like, there are so many rats in New York that you're never more than a few metres away from a rat. I feel I feel like you're referring to the 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 awful crime ridden New York of the seventies and eighties and you've somehow No, I'm talking about modern New York. You've somehow missed the rehabilitation that has happened since then? There was that story not too long ago about a bunch of people becoming rat vigilantes in yeah. New York. Like hunting rats like it's Pokemon Go. Anyways, we, we can discuss this more on our new travel show that we'll be spinning off from this podcast where Jean will tell us what he thinks about different locations around the world. That he's never been to. <laughs> hey, I'm not having a go at New York. You I'm clearly sure the people are. Picking fights around the world. <laughs> You're talking about how it's rat-ridden. You're talking about how New Yorkers are, are so toxic that cons- giant lizards consuming them would have fire breath. Like, how can anyone not interpret that as having a go at New York? I'm just parroting everything that the movies taught me. You better hope you don't end up being a, mo- a foreign correspondent. You're going to get beat up, you know that. <laughs> Stabbed in an alley somewhere. But with oh, New York... Now who's expected. got a problem with New York? So crime-infested <laughs> that I'll get stabbed, huh? I never said it was New York. I'm just saying that you're just going to end up insulting whatever city you get sent to, and someone's going to smack you across the face for it. Look, That's all I'm I've, saying. Got nothing, I've got nothing against Chicago. I'm not going to get stabbed by someone in Chicago. I've got nothing against Edinburgh. See, that is really interesting to me that you take all this stuff from the movies about New York, but you take none of the the corruption and mob stuff about from the movies about Chicago. Batman's handling it. <laughs> no, he isn't. He doesn't live in Chicago. He lives in Gotham. He lives in fake Chicago. Besides, he died at the end of Dark Knight Rises. So. Okay, so Robin's handling it. All right, what, we need to move on, guys. Um... And, and in any case, just to wrap this up, uh, it, it killed the planned trilogy that they had set up dead, oh, which Jesus. was a, a good thing. Oh, Roland, no. 
That's even more fish. If if Roland, he, and I mean this with all respect to him because he is technically an auteur, but he should never be handed sequels. Never. Is he an auteur, or like, is an auteur someone who just has power over the, who just has a lot of power over their movies, or is an auteur someone with a specific style? And I would say Emmerich has a specific style. I'm not saying that it has to be a good one for someone to be an auteur. Tommy Wiseau is an auteur. Neil Breen is an auteur. Neil Breen is an auteur. I think it's much easier to make a defense of them being auteurs than Roland Emmerich, though. There's something that is more unique. Like, if you had a Roland Emmerich movie, the way I always think about auteurship, and this might not be... This might be different from the way you think of it, but I think of it being like, if you showed me a movie without telling me who made it, I should be able, through knowing their previous work, have a, have a decent idea of, of who that is. That's like, I can identify a Quentin Tarantino movie without knowing that it's Quentin Tarantino. You can identify a Spielberg. Yes. Scorsese, you know, these people that we consider auteurs, I can, I can see when it's their work because they have a very notable point of view. And I'm not sure that Roland, if you, if I had never seen, you know, 2012 or anonymous that bizarro you know shakespeare didn't actually write the plays conspiracy theorist movie that he did like if you put anonymous in front of me without telling me who made it i wouldn't you know would any of us really go to roland emmerich well if they well, had you left would it... it has the preface at the beginning if they, if they had left in the deleted... You can't forget that. If they had left in the deleted scene where it's Zilla reciting sonnets at the Globe, then maybe. Anyways, I much prefer the 2014 American take on Godzilla. I, I actually really love that movie. It, it ties into... I, I get a real lost season one vibe in Godzilla. The mm. idea of just what the hell is going on here. Like that very mysterious sort of eerie vibe that it's got going yeah, on. Yeah, there's so sort of like of a... It almost cosmic horror kind of bent oh, to the, it. Like, yeah. the because, thing with the... Because you can't even comprehend how massive these creatures yeah. are. The Hilo jump's the best part of that. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. No question. Oh, I, there were two great parts in that. The Hilo jump and Godzilla literally ripping <laughs> one of the Muto's mouths open and breathing atomic breath into its throat. I like when Brian Cranston is screaming at people, too. Oh, yeah! That's also fun. That's but good, Brian that goes. That goes without saying. That's that's like having salt and pepper on your eggs. <laughs> it's like we'll we'll probably do an episode on that one day. Yeah. I next watched Mulan, the animated nineteen ninety eight version. This is a family animated musical adventure directed by Tony Bancroft and Barry Cook. It is based on the epic poem, The Ballad of Mulan, by and I apologize by mangling the pronunciation of this. Guo Maoquen. In medieval China, it is unclear exactly what year. Huns have invaded, and a male of every family is conscripted to fight in defence. Unfortunately, the only male in the Far family is the Patriarch. He's elderly and left with a permanent leg injury from a previous war. And so to spare him, his daughter Mulan, played by Ming-Na Wen, who people might know from her live-action roles in ER and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., disguises herself in his armour and sneaks off to enlist herself pretending to be a man, which is a deception that is punishable by death. This is a fun, exciting adventure that, to me, marks the end of the Disney Renaissance. I know that Tarzan is technically the end of it. I don't... For me, though, that's not part of it. It's 
like for me the the renaissance is this it is the musicals really and Tarzan just feels different it feels it feels more of a more of a pair with the stuff that Disney's moved on to into the in the two thousands. Yeah, Tarzan is more akin to like Brother Bear, like or, it's not a musical. It feels more like Lilo and Stitch, licensed yeah. music, yeah. Instead of in it, even if it's music written songs. for the thing, it's not like the characters. It's are, still licensed. Yeah, like with Tarzan, it's not Tarzan and Jane and God forbid Clayton singing. It's Phil Collins. Yeah. And I love that music, but again, it's, it's not different. like it's not really a musical if it's just God singing to you. Mm. Mulan is perhaps Disney's first feminist heroine. This is a story of equality and determination. It's it's a necessary step in the ever developing progression of Disney heroine's agency. It marks the point when the classical style of Disney princess that was started by Snow White is wholly transformed for the approaching new millennium into characters of agency. Uh, Mulan is a strong character. She's physically capable and she explicitly is looked down upon both for her gender and for not adhering to traditional gender roles. And her journey to save all of China is a repudiation of such talk. That seems important for little girls. It also challenges The Hunchback of Notre Dame for being one of Disney's most mature films of the area. It doesn't match the simple darkness of Hunchback, no. but this is about warfare. And, you know. In terms of tonal whiplash, Mulan, yes. I think, crushes. The boppy Disney travel song that is interrupted mid-lyric by a burned town and a slaughtered <laughs> army that they come across. I mean, yeah, like, it's full-on stuff here. And uh, no one ever seems to mention that Mulan herself basically wipes out the entire Hun army with an avalanche. Like, she has a body count in the multiple thousands by the end of this movie. Like, she has killed thousands upon thousands of people. The the narrative is an engaging hero's journey that's spiked with humour as Mulan tries to conceal her gender from her male compatriots. She's assisted by one of the best Disney sidekicks for my money, uh, the Cricket. dragon, Cricket. the dragon Mushu, <laughs> played by Eddie Murphy. He accidentally kills the more impressive. Like it's kind, of, it's kind of another like bizarre thing that's never really addressed. Is he accidentally murders the the more impressive dragon that was supposed to be sent to assist Mulan, sent by her her deceased ancestors to help her? He accidentally kills kills that dragon and and has to assume kills uh, is a bit of a. I don't know, I think that's a bit of a harsh he look smacks, at what was he happening. He smacks the stone dragon with a gong, and the dragon bursts into a billion pieces. How do you interpret that as anything but death? This is a Santa Claus situation. Everyone forgets that at the beginning of the Santa Claus, Tim Allen murders Santa. Again, I think murders is a very strong word to use it's within that context. It's manslaughter, technically. He yells at a man who's on his roof, Santa... Not expecting someone to yell for some reason, even though they, it's trespassing. Within the narrative property. of the movie, they explicitly make it like this medieval thing where whoever kills Santa assumes the mantle of Santa. Like oh, yeah, they... I'm not saying he didn't kill him. I'm saying he <laughs> I'm didn't just murder saying it's him. Murder. It's, it's not... pedantics, but it's important when we're talking about the law. It's so 
It's it is a really bizarre way to open a kids movie with the death it of is. Santa Claus and <laughs> another man assuming the mantle and inheriting his his slave army of workshop elves. It's a horror movie. Not only that, he his body like he inherits his form, hmm. and that's horrific. It's a body horror. It's a body horror film that begins with the murder of the spirit of Christmas joy. Anyways, we're not talking about the Santa Claus. I'm talking about Mulan. (laughs) Mushu, we're pretty... We've got a lot of tangents here today, don't we, guys? Mushu is is a blast of personality. He's sarcastic and loquacious. He's great fun. Um, Less effective, though, is the love interest, Captain Lee Shang. He's voiced by B.D. Wong. He's fine as a character, but the romance is rushed and perfunctory. He's only there because this is a Disney movie and there must be a romance of some shape or form what's your favorite mushu line in this movie oh i don't know i just like the general eddie murphy patter that seems improvised Mm. like just the general personality that he injects in there i think my favorite line never seen a black and white before yep what's the problem never seen a black and white before i love that line and i love how it just climbs up the tree (laughs) the physical comedy in this movie is exceptional the, the animation is spectacular with wide vistas and some really impressive crowd work. It's got clever use of CGI that presages things to come with Disney animation. The thing the, on the mountain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the music is phenomenal, but it's barely a musical. There are four songs plus the credits. The, the second half is entirely without music. Disney was losing interest in the musical at this point. This was their last one for quite a while. And it's a pity because the songs are great, especially I'll Make a Man Out of You and that thumping chorus that it's got. Must be swift as a coursing river With all the force of a great typhoon With all the strength of a raging fire Mysterious as the dark side of the moon It's, it's just a strong, entertaining finale to a decade of great Disney musicals. They, were nev- they never had as good a run as this ever again. It is, of course, available for streaming on Disney Plus if you're interested. They're coming back to musicals like as of Frozen. They're well, yeah, they did. They, they got Tangled now, Frozen, Mula- uh, Moana, Princess and the Frog. Yeah, and they're doing the remakes, obviously. Anyways, I next watched Mulan Two, which is a direct-to-video sequel directed by Daryl Rooney and Lynn Sutherland. In it, a newly engaged Mulan and Shang, uh, along with this Three Stooges set of soldiers that they've got, uh, tasked with transporting three princesses to a neighbouring country to be married in a strategic alliance against the Huns. This is complicated both by the princesses and the comic relief soldiers falling in love, and a scheme by Mushu, who is now voiced by Mark Mosley. Eddie Murphy was apparently not allowed to return due to contractual stuff with Shrek 2. It sounds like him, though. Very close. Oh, it's a white guy. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, that's a bit of a... It's a white guy doing an Eddie Murphy impression. Yeah. Mm, As a little kid, I couldn't tell the difference. I couldn't tell the difference. I just thought it was Murphy again. But Mushu now is trying to break up Mulan and Shang because he wants to save his job. 
and there's apparently some clause in his contract with the ancestors that once Mulan gets married, the man's family takes over the um, protection of her. So Mulan's going to be out of a job. Mushu's going to be out of a job. Yes, Mushu's going to be out of a job. This is a very different sequel that loses the scale and the drama, but is perfectly acceptable fun. There's no war or armies or death here. This is a romantic comedy. Also, I suppose a road movie. The gang goes on their journey as predictable complications arise thanks to Mushu and his schemes, while basic themes of, of duty versus personal fulfilment are also broached. There's the whole arranged marriage versus marriage for love angle. Again, this is a feminist message, but this is altogether more lighthearted than one. The romance between Mulan and Shang is unconvincing, though. It's an afterthought in the first movie, and that shallowness is on full display here. Practically all of their interaction in the first film was while Mulan was in disguise as a man, and so it leaves the filmmakers to reconcile their established characters from the first film with a mandated relationship that doesn't really work. The sidekick romance between the princesses and the soldiers is more successful. It's predictable, but it's sweet, and it offers some easygoing slapstick cartoon humour. It's an uncomplicated plot at the end of the day. It's, it's fluff... It's insubstantial, but it's fun while it lasts. And that's all I can really expect to ask of these direct-to-video Disney sequels. I like the, repri- I like the reprise they do of A Girl Worth Fighting For. I like the music in At this the beginning. I'll, I'll get to that. I think it's a nice expansion on the original song. The worst misstep is turning Mushu into the closest thing the movie has to an antagonist. His success in the first film was thanks to his vibrant personality and his amusing, often self-defeating attempts to assist Mulan. He had a selfish streak, but a good heart. And here, he's just mean. It's just an arsehole. It robs the character of its fun. And also now... It's, he's an annoyance because of he's, his function in the narrative is to create obstacles that we, the audience, know are not real. Even his design seems to have changed to seem slightly more suspect. It's a mishandling of the character, despite the eerily accurate Eddie Murphy impersonation by Mosley. The animation gets the standard drop in detail uh, that these Disney DTV movies get, but it's one of the more impressive-looking ones of these. It's clean, it's well-rendered. It, it looks on par with a primetime animated show rather than a cheap 90s Saturday morning cartoon. It still does feel a lot like television, which, come to think of it, bleeds into the plot as well. The songs are an utter failure, in my opinion, however, that I don't think there are any memorable tunes, and again, there are only four songs, one of which is a very brief reprise of the weakest in the first, and and that's all in the first half of the movie. Disney always did have trouble making musicals which stayed musicals into the third act. There is one song, like other girls, that I have to call out for being actively terrible. It is discordant and unpleasant to listen to. I want to be like other girls. Climb up a tree like other girls can. Just to be free like other girls. Get to be. When I sit to eat a whole cake, feel the sun on my feet, get dirty, <laughs> silly, be anything I want to be, dance around in my underwear, <laughs> to run really fast, to get rid of this oh. man, to eat a whole cake, to cry. 
crazy. With casting! No escort, no manners, no nursemaid, no, no worries, no hands folded perfect. Like Hodina Lily. Anyways, this is all in all a decent and actually pretty fun Disney direct-to-video film. I laughed out loud a few times, and there was enough personality to make up for the shortcomings of the narrative and the music. It's it's on Disney Plus for streaming. It's one of the better sequels. Yeah, it is. Of, of the direct-to-video sort, absolutely. Yeah. The bar was not exactly set high there, though. I next watched The Negotiator, which is a thriller directed by F. Gary Gray. It is about Danny Roman, played by Samuel L. Jackson. He is a Chicago police hostage negotiator, and he is framed for his partner's murder and the embezzlement of pension funds by unknown dirty cops within the Chicago Police Department. And he's left with no options, so he takes an internal affairs cop that he suspects is in on it, as well as several others, hostage on the 20 something floor of a city administration building. And he will only speak to Chris Sabian, played by Kevin Spacey, a hostage negotiator on the other side of the city who is well out of range of the conspiracy. This is a tense, well-acted potboiler that I'm a little surprised hasn't stuck in the culture more. It's a long movie. It's 140 minutes. It's mainly given over to an extended hostage situation, but we, we get shorter bits on either side. The opening 30 minutes are the establishment of the frame-up. We meet Roman and his co-workers, who are a, a murderous row of character actors with known potential for playing shifty parts. You know, we get Ron Rifkin, David Morse, John Spencer, J.T. Walsh, Dean Norris, Nesta Serrano. I mean, it makes for a fine stable of performances who we can also suspect of potentially being in on the conspiracy. But the early goings are the least interesting. The, the setup is nothing that we haven't seen before, and the character work, while serviceable, it's not why we're, he why we're here. It also misses an opportunity to have us genuinely doubt Roman's innocence. I think that's a more interesting take on the movie, is if we don't quite know whether he's actually guilty or not. Because... The way that it's actually shot, we see his point of view throughout the entire thing. We know that he did not kill his partner because we see him discover the body. So it's kind of a missed opportunity there. The movie starts firing on all cylinders once the hostage situation begins. It, it leads to the longest of the film's three distinct sections. Roman's knowledge of the police and his friendship with their members, as well as his intense familiarity with how these things go makes for an excellent chess match as he matches wits with those outside the building. The The introduction of Sabian as a character doesn't come until 45 minutes in, and he creates excellent tension as, as they parry each other through procedures that they're both familiar with. Roman has far more control than a normal criminal. Sabian, of course, starts to suspect that he's telling the truth, as do the hostages, who very entertainingly start to move to Roman's side as the film goes on. You get an early Paul Giamatti role as an informant who starts to get like really into things and really into supporting Samuel L. Jackson in his quest to discover the 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 truth of the matter. These scenes are mostly high-intensity phone conversations mixed with Jackson or Spacey yelling at other characters that are in the room with them. And they maintain suspense remarkably well, and, and they're punctured by brief but frenzied action as the cops make unsuccessful attempts to move in. You got an excellent score by Graham Revel that underpins the drama really well. 
there are excellent performances by both of the of the leads, and they play off each other pretty brilliantly. Jackson is particularly good. We we rarely get to see him vulnerable and not in control anymore, like he is in this movie. We get to see Samuel L. Jackson cry in this movie. I can't think of another movie where I've seen Samuel L. Jackson cry. Neither can I. That is weird. But uh, he's a great actor. He, you know, I see it. I believe it, you know. But the finale leaves the office building for denouement. It's a bit of a letdown. It's predictable and it's nothing we haven't seen a hundred times before. But the payoff when the truth finally comes out is, is still very satisfying. After the palpable tension of the previous 80 minutes, though, it's it's disappointing to switch into such a minor key for the last 20. But I'm also not sure what I'd have had in its place. It's a it's a really solid, impressively constructed thriller that relies on great acting and intense scripting rather than bangs and flashes. It's it's good stuff. It's available for streaming on Amazon Prime in Australia if anyone's interested. Finally this week, I watched Cube 2 Hypercube, which is a sci-fi thriller directed by... Uh, and I apologise again if I'm mangling the name. I, I did look up the pronunciation of, of this name. A while back, I might have forgotten the intricacies of it. Anjay Sekula. It is about a new group of people who wake up in a new, snazzier cube system. We'll go into the intricacies of all this when we talk about Cube 1. But they wake up in this new cube system and they they contemplate both how they got there and how to get out. This cube is different, though. The meat and potatoes traps are gone. And instead, some of these chambers feature violations of basic laws of science. This... Lots of teleportation and timey-wimey stuff. There's a weird energy force field that sweeps the rooms, annihilating anything in its path. whole lot of crazy stuff going on here. If, if you thought the first one was an odd duck, this is truly bonkers. It, it, it's a much better script this time around, with better characters and much better actors. Each of these new prisoners has a more rounded personality than the denizens of the original contraption, and and it makes their interplay more crisp and believable. There's a decent slew of actors that that match the best performances of the first, and the dodgy community theatre stuff of the worst performances of the first are all gone. It's altogether an improvement. Less so narratively, though. For for the first half of the movie, we get largely the same dynamic as the first, and it's nothing revolutionary, but it works well. You know, mysterious location makes for pressure cooker, made worse by personality clashes. Uh, there's a violent hothead and, and revelations that members of the group have some knowledge of the cube. Uh, we get much more of an idea of what the cube is here and why it's being made, but it's also a distinct entity from the first. The same group is behind it, but the first cube system's true purpose remains unclear. We don't find that out until the disappointing third movie, which I'll be talking about next week. The nature of this particular construct ties into character skills and backstories. They're all there for reasons that are obvious by the film's end, as opposed to the first one, where the selection often seemed kind of random. Uh, the CGI is improved, and the cube, which is all the same colour now, it's, it's all white walls rather than the differing colours of the first, is of a more high-tech design and brightly lit. It's, it, I mean, it doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it's fun. Then Cube 2 gets really ambitious. 
the new theoretical physics trap rooms make for some cool mind bending what the fuck sequences and their initial utilization lends a real sense of added scope and scale it it gives a sense of reality itself being dangerous it's not it's not you know what trap could be in this room it's like can you actually trust the basic laws of physics that are that are working mm. around you which creates a really interesting vibe but as the film enters its second half, the narrative doubles down heavily on mindfucks and things just go berserk. On the one hand, it's super impressive and gutsy and it's incredibly striking in its weirdness, but at the same time, it's clear that the screenwriters have lost control of their story. It spirals into surreality and by the time we reach the finale, I was deeply confused as to what was actually happening anymore. There are extremely complex pieces of theoretical science that are just thrown around with abandon, but there's too much of it for the script to properly orientate the audience to it. The movie is clearly very excited by all these admittedly fascinating ideas it, it, it's having, but it's too much too fast, and the end result is that the narrative explodes as it reaches its conclusion. I really admire the ideas here and the general improvements in character work had this on track to be at least as good as its predecessor, but the uncontrolled combustion of the ending knocks it off course just too much for it to fully realise that potential. It's still gripping and it's admirably ambitious for such a low-budget film, but it has serious structural flaws. It is also available for streaming on Prime Video if you're interested. Such a good title too. Yes, hypercube. Well, a hypercube is apparently a specific. It's also on Tubi. I should add. A hypercube is as a apparently they explain in the movies a a theoretical concept of a cube that has a fourth dimension, being time, which plays into some of the weirder stuff that's going on there. Anyway, what have you guys watched this week? All right. So something we've watched over the past two weeks is have you seen Karate Kid? No. Right. No, ver- no version of Karate Kid, not the remake either. Right. So what we watched is a series called Cobra Kai, which is a continuation of the original, original series. Set 34 years after the events of the 1984 All-Valley Karate Tournament, a down-and-out Johnny Lawrence, the, you know, the bully character, the bully the character in that movie, seeks redemption by reopening the infam- infamous Cobra Kai dojo reigniting his rivalry with a now-successful Daniel LaRusso. This is a very good series. Yeah. It was initially, I believe, being produced on YouTube Red. Yes. That short-lived endeavor by YouTube to become a streaming service, the likes of Netflix or Amazon. They're still doing it, I think, but it's all like, your favorite YouTube streamers are doing game shows now. Like, it's that kind of thing now. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Not as ambitious as what they and, were intending and, and Logan to do. Paul finding bodies that aren't hanging in a <laughs> forest. God, didn't he? Wasn't there some weird like moment with him and like a rat or something that? <laughs> yes, he, he tased the dead rat. He, no, he was he tased the dead rat. Okay, yeah. of course. He found a dead rat in his yeah. garbage. I Let's think. give that guy a platform. Sounds great. Anyway, Cobra Kai is a really good show. Oh, it is. Uh, it's. Really, honestly, held together by fantastic performances from Ralph Macchio and William Zabka, who are reprising their roles from the original films. Yeah. It's awesome to see how much they've developed as actors, yeah. especially Billy Zabka. Because yeah. 
a lot of his stuff in the you know original film. It's your basic. He like, wasn't 80s... the focal. He wasn't the focal character. It's so your basic eighties bully. Yeah, he wasn't the main character. So you're not seeing much of a complexity Although of performance you get up a until few the moments end. At the end, where he's like, "Should I sweep the lens? But that doesn't seem right. Doesn't seem right." But in Cobra Kai, Johnny Lawrence is the main character. Yeah, he's the focal point, which we follow through the whole thing with other characters having perspectives. But he's the yeah. key character. Not only is it a believable sequel that pays so much homage to the original series, it also carries the f- on the themes. The themes of karate is self-defense. It's not to be used in anger. Yeah. You use your martial arts training to either help people or as a form of self-defense. Self-balance. Yeah. You do not use it to harm people. Johnny is wrestling with how he was trained, and the fact he's stuck in the 80s way of understanding things. But some of the other performers in it are the younger lot, who are... Sort of the next the, generation. The next generation, the students. There's Zola Meridurina, I believe that's how you pronounce the name. He plays a character called Miguel, who's Johnny Lawrence's first new student. Yeah. And he has this... Very fascinating character arc. He starts out this good-natured kid, but over the course of the series, he sort of goes back and forth from becoming way too aggressive and too violent for his own good. Yeah. You also get Mary Mouser as Danny LaRusso's daughter. And you also get Tana Tana Buchanan as Johnny Lawrence's son. Estranged son. Estranged son, who eventually trains under Daniel LaRusso. Yeah. So there's that whole sort of interplay with character relationships. The fight choreography oh, yeah. is impeccable. It's was, all performed by the actors. There was only one part where I, was, I thought that the fight choreography wasn't that good, and it was in the big fight thing at yeah. the end of the second season, and it's these two little kids doing karate against each other. But that was so hilarious, and I'm just watching this and I'm thinking, that no, there's like, no weight behind... Like, when they fake punch each other. Yeah. You don't buy it as much. It's it That bit's played for humour. Oh, yeah, because a security uh, guard just grabs them. <laughs> and picks them off and goes away from the fight. Because they can't do anything about it. Uh, it's a little more on the heightened reality side of things than the oh, original yeah. series are. Like, characters commit... Like, just like characters commit crimes finish. where I'm like, you would get characters easily for that. Characters... Gain martial arts ability much, much quicker than they would in reality, and <laughs> also in the original rate. series. Like at an exceptional rate, Miguel becomes a real badass in like in like four months. I don't know. I think it's less than four months, dude. Like it doesn't happen that quickly. But it's a fantastic show. I fully recommend it, especially if you adore the original series as much as my parents do. Yeah. Especially for my dad, he was very much into karate when he was a young adult. He taught karate for a long time. Yeah, so it's it was a very significant series for him. And Yeah, to... so whenever we watch anything Karate Kid adjacent, it's always like, no, dad was the Karate Kid. Yeah, it brings a lot of stuff back up for him. We also watched a movie for Australian Screen called Cool and Get a Gold. Yes, so the Cool and Get a Gold follows... It's set in the 80s, and it follows two brothers. Now, 
tell me if you've heard this one before, because it's basically the plot for East of Eden. Two brothers, their father loves one of them more than the other, and issues happen all around that. Except in this, they are also put into conflict with real-life Iron Man athlete Grant Kenny. So it's all... So the father is training his son Adam to be, I guess... An, an Iron Man. An Iron Man. It's you know, a the, multi... The, the triathlete. Multi-tiered race where you run on the beach and then you swim and then you get on a raft and apparently climb up a mountain in this movie's version of it. And it's all about the relationship between the father and the two sons mm. and the rivalry that happens there. There's sort of a half-baked romance that doesn't yeah, really matter no at the end of the day it's it's all about the interplay of the fathers and sons and this is a good movie but it gets it takes a little bit to get going properly hmm. where the moment that a lot of the drama actual drama starts happening like someone gets in a you know motorcycle accident that's i guess somewhat caused through cause and effect by another character and it's that's when a lot of the drama properly starts happening. You get this kind of... But it happens a bit too late into the film. Yeah. It kind of wastes the first sort of 20 minutes and set up. you get... So, I don't want to talk about spoilers, but... The ending is... The ending is bullshit. Yeah. No one learns anything except for one character, and he's just... I think he's just leaving... Mm. He's getting on a motorbike and he's pissing It's an off. unsatisfying ending. It's an unsatisfying ending. But yeah. the athleticism on display from the actors yeah. is incredible. Yeah, but I can't help but sort of think that when they're running out of the surf and they're, you know, huffing and puffing, I'm like, mm, you weren't running a marathon before they turned the camera on, were you? Like, there's... Yeah, it's impressive and everything, but then you realise, oh, because of the nature of filmmaking, they weren't running that whole marathon. Yeah, but that's only if you're thinking about it. It's totally believable while you're watching it. Sort of broke my immersion. That That's the criticism that you've, you've found, John, is that they're not actually doing everything that the movie depicts them as doing? No, that's... Do you sit there watching Apollo 13 going, oh, you know, I... I don't think Tom Hanks actually went to space. This is very disappointing. What, what I'm trying to say is the movie doesn't have, I guess, enough character happening in the first few minutes or the first like half of the movie where I was able to sort of get invested within the world of it. Mm. But yeah, it's it's a good movie and I'm glad I watched it. I really yeah. wanted Grant Kenny to win. Yeah. When are you guys watching Brand New Day? I... Later in the semester. Oh, it's a great movie. I really want to hear what you guys think of it. Oh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll we'll get. I love the music. I love the music in that. We also watched a movie that we've been wanting to watch for ages ever since we knew it was coming out. We watched Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse because it has finally come to streaming services. Now, this follows two two lighthouse keepers who I will call young and old. And they... Young is played by Robert Pattinson, old is played by Willem Dafoe. And in order to not ruin some of the great 
twists and surprises in this movie. All I'll say is they lose their minds on this, in this lighthouse, on this isolated island in, I, I think it's New England. So, like, sort of bordering near Canada. Yeah. Not, not quite Nova Scotia, but close. It's, it's getting there. Yeah. The acting in this movie is downright incredible. And it is supported by an absolutely brilliant script by Robert and Max Eggers, who capture the vibe of that kind of time period and that kind of patter, that, the way that they talk. It's a lot of eye-matey kind of stuff, but not like in a shitty pirate way. <laughs> it's very honest to the dialects of the time, yeah. much like his work on The Witch. Exactly. He's very much into historical context and accuracy. There's not much anachronism no. in the dialogue. And that goes a long way to placing you in this time. It's a great two-hander. It's a great two-hander between Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. My god. Both of them get opportunities to just shine in this film. And those scenes where they're just going off at each other and it's just marvelous it's it's a joy to watch it's one of those films where if you're a film buff or you're an acting buff you watch it and you're pleased you might not understand everything that's going on you might not know what's if what's happening to the characters is real fiction lying or if it was all in someone's head but it doesn't matter because you're watching people at the pinnacle of their craft. Mm. The production design is fantastic. The sets are brilliant because they actually they built a lighthouse for this film that the people in New England actually wanted to keep because they were like, "Oh, it looks really cool, so we want to keep it as like a tourist thing." Yeah. But they actually they had to tear it down because it, it was only built to like last for the you know thirty seven days of production or something. But yeah, this movie is creepy in the same way that the witch is, and it's shot in a but it's very a, but it's a different sort of energy too. It's a more it's, frantic energy. It, it than is the carefully constructed tension of the witch. If it it reminds me of a few things. It reminds me of the a novel, a uh, sorry, an epic poem by Samuel Coleridge, "The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner," but which has a lot of the same, the ocean and proximity to the ocean yeah. can drive you mad, and an emphasis on ocean themed superstition. Like there's a whole thing in this film with seagulls. You don't kill a seabird. You just, you don't kill them because it's bad luck. Yeah. Because they hold the souls and the spirits of dead sailors. And that's a whole thing. To quote Bruce Dickinson, the singer for Iron Maiden, who wrote a song about Rama the Ancient Mariner, and very fittingly for this movie it applies, this is a tale of what not to do when your seagull shits on you. It really reminds me of that re one episode of The Goodies where they yeah. get hired to live in a lighthouse for a while. Similar sort of rounded. mental degradation. Mental degradation. Lighthouses are not the best places for one's mental health. Also, the music in this movie, 
I've forgotten the name of the person who did it. Uh, Mark Corven, who also did the music for uh, The Witch, obviously. Also did the music for Cube. And he is a fascinating composer because you, even when there's music happening, you don't know. Because it's so entrenched... It's affecting with, you. It's so entrenched with the sound design of the movie that it's... Yeah, it's brilliant. I, I fully Watch recommend it. it. Watch This it. is... You can find The Lighthouse on Binge. Also, the aspect ratio is gorgeous. Yeah. You can find The Lighthouse on Binge or Amazon Prime when, if you're in Australia. Now, we have our short little segment. I'm just going to speed through this stuff for Save Me From Smallville, where we cover the scary shit that happens within the Superman origin story, Smallville. I'm just going to be really quick reading from my list. We watched a few episodes. Episode 18. The villain is bee-themed. For some people, bees themselves are scary. I don't like them. The continued presence of Alison Mack. A face made out of bees. Oh, I hate bad. that shit. That was bad. That was freaky. When your villain of the week starts talking in metaphors, that's a bad <laughs> yeah, sign. Yeah, she goes up to a girl and is like, talking about hives and shit, and it's like, get nuts. Yep. The bee lady is willing to kill people to win student president. Not worth it. The bee girl was only doing it to impress her parents, who were very, very likely, very, very strict on her. Episode 19. Why does Metropolis Children's Hospital look like Arkham Asylum on a bad day? <laughs> Literally thunder and lightning. Falling elevators. Ever since, you know, in speed, I don't like falling elevators. Nobody should try to get out of elevators stuck halfway between floors. We know that. Adam Brody, who plays the villain in this, he brings a weird, weepy sort of energy. Oh, yeah. He has telekinesis and killed the principal of Smallville High, who may have hit him in a hit and run. But Adam Brody murdered the wrong guy. It was the principal's son who hit him with the car. On the door of Adam Brody's character's room in his house is a ca- is a the painting or called The Nightmare by Henry Fuseli, which is a famous painting of a nightmare demon sitting on someone's chest. The character Whitney said was getting better, was being the operative word. The continued pain in which Whitney lives every single day is yeah, continually it's upsetting. Rough. Oh, when that happens. Uh, time After Time is not the best song for a funeral. No. Just going to put it out there. No, it's not. Uh, but I'm not going to judge. Episode 20, the continued presence of Alice and Mac. We see someone get buried alive in a very distressing looking co- coffin with like a sort of green plastic window shaped like a cross. It's unfortunate. Seeing through someone's eyes as they are shot through the head also features... Traumatizing. Episode 21. Lex Luthor's continued daddy issues. Clark gets car-bombed. But he's fine. Three tornadoes turn into one big tornado. Then, the scariest sentence to ever be broadcast. To be continued. So that's the end of season one. Yeah. Uh, Leaving on a cliffhanger. Will Chloe kiss Clark? Will the tornado destroy Smallville? Will Lex Luthor finally get his daddy's approval? Will Pete finally realize that he's kind of a pointless character? All will be revealed next season, which is next week.
So now we're going to show you so you can listen to the trailer for Cube. Twenty-six rooms high. Twenty-six rooms across. Seventeen thousand five hundred and seventy-six rooms. Does anybody remember how they got here? Why would they throw innocent people in here? Are we being punished? There's a way in here, so there's got to be a way out. Do you think they'd go to all the trouble to build this thing if we could just walk out? Take a good long look around. I got a feeling it's looking at us. We have about three days without food and water before we're too weak to move. I just want to wake up. I looked no room down there and something almost cut my head off. Motion detectors integrated into the walls. Tough to spot. You're not getting out of here. Yes, we are. There is no way out of here. We need to get around the trap. They're identified by prime numbers. Figure it out. I can't. I'm not dying in a rat maze. No more talking. No more guessing. You gotta save yourselves from yourselves. What the hell's going on? We haven't been moving in circles, the rooms have. We are the key. The cube is us. That was the trailer for Cube. It is a science fiction psychological thriller, I suppose you'd put it, directed by Vincenzo Natale. And it is about six strangers who wake up in a mysterious room with no memory of how they got there. The room is empty, save for hatches on all six sides, all four walls and the ceiling and the floor, which lead to rooms exactly the same. They quickly realize they are in a maze and must find a way out but this is complicated by the fact that there's no real way of knowing which way to go. And some of the rooms are wired with deadly booby traps. So why don't we just start off by going around and saying what we each thought about this briefly. Why don't you start us off, Sean? What did you think of Cube? I think the best thing about this movie in particular is the concept and sort of the theme of the perpetual creation of pointless product. Like, I love the whole Kafka-esque bureaucracy rant that the... I forgot what his name is. The regular bloke. The one who's not the cop and the one who's not a savant. Worth. The whole... Yeah, worth. The whole rant he goes on about... You think anyone knows what they're, what they're doing? Like, it's a rudderless ship. There's There's no captain. It's just people, you know, rowing. It's not going towards anything there's no one controlling it it's just happening i think that is so existentially terrifying that i love just that concept and i love the idea of just doing more cube movies where you just put other people with different personalities in the same cube but you like ramp it up with different traps and everything like the possibilities for this concept are honestly endless, and it's a shame the direction that the franchise went in terms of having a prequel and explaining it. I quite like this film. It's one of the first of that really industrial horror stuff, like Saw, 
It's very much in that sort of aesthetic vein, while not really thematically, you know, similar. I love the concept. This is one of those movies that really shows me how uh, not being very good at maths is detrimental. I don't know. I've got that calculator in my pocket now. You know, all of those teachers who told me, well, you're not going to have a calculator in real life, you know, egg <laughs> on their face. Screw you. Uh, not I necessarily do now. if you're in the cube. Yeah, but that's like, if I'm what's in a cube, that happen? You know, if I'm in a cube... Well, we'll get, we'll get, we'll get to the chances of that happening a bit later when we discuss the nature of the cube. Well, as I was, as I was saying, as the first of the sort of industrial horror sort of stuff that would become very popular during the early two thousands, this is conceptually amazing. I, I l- just love the idea of the sort of maze idea, the sort of three D idea of it. It's a fascinating idea with. Pretty good practical effects when they do come by. Oh yeah, the thing at the beginning. Yeah. It is... The acting's not great, uh, particularly by one of the characters we'll get to that. A character that really, which one really is. bothered me with the acting choices. Does he have bug eyes? Oh yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get into that. It's, it's just very good. A, a better sort of script and better actors would make it a much stronger film yeah but i can't fault the visual direction or the conception of it it's you believe it conceptually it's genius and i love the fact that you don't see anything out of the outside world it's just the cube the cube is all there is yeah this is a weird enthralling indie movie with a great premise um it it executes on that premise with a good narrative and interesting directing, but I, I do think it has spotty dialogue and wildly inconsistent acting. I will, I agree with you, Harley, that there are there are some people here that we need to discuss in detail their performances. Um, but overall, I, I think it's just it's a really smart idea, and it's it's one of those ideas that hooks you immediately. It's like instantaneously, you're like, oh, I want to know more about this. It's like people in a cube. Mm. Tell me more. So let's let's start there. I mean, it, it is a brilliant idea. It's simple. It's creepy. It's instantly compelling. Where are they? Who is behind this? Why is it happening in the first place? We don't actually get any answers in this movie. And I think that's smart. I think that's a good idea. We will get answers eventually in Cube Zero, which I will talk about next week but i think for the purposes of this conversation it's probably best that we just don't take cube zero into account yeah um i'm happy not taking and i'd rather not remember why the cube is yeah (laughs) so the ambiguity is really effective here that you you you, they theorize a whole lot here like you you get that great as you said kafka-esque rant by worth as to what do you actually think this is you th- this is just this thing that if it ever had a purpose people have forgotten it and now they've just put a perpetual public works machine yeah. we gotta get out of here and blow the lid off this thing holloway you don't get it then help me please i need to know this may be hard for you to understand but there is no conspiracy nobody is in charge it's, it's a headless blunder operating under the illusion of a master plan. Can you grasp that? Big Brother is not watching you. What kind of fucking explanation is that? 
It's the best you're gonna get. I looked and the only conclusion I could come to is that there is nobody up there. Somebody had to say yes to this thing. What thing? Only we know what it is. We have no idea what it is. We know more than anybody else. I mean, somebody might have known sometime before they got, they got fired or voted out or sold it. But if this place ever had a purpose, then it got miscommunicated or, or, or lost in the shuffle. I mean, this is an accident, a, a forgotten perpetual public works project. You think anybody wants to ask questions? All they want is a, is a clear conscience and a fat paycheck. I mean, I leaned on my shovel for months on this one. This was a great job. Why put people in it? Because it's here. You have to use it or you admit it's pointless. But it, it is pointless. Quentin, that's my point. What have we come to? It's so much worse than I thought. Not really. Just more pathetic. Um, you also mentioned how happy you were, I think it was you, Harley, that they never showed what was outside the cube. And that was actually something that the director, that the director cut. They had one final shot of Kazan walking outside of the cube at the end and we would see what was outside. And that was the first thing that was cut when they got into editing. And I think that's the smart call. The movie is not interested in that. And I, knowing what's outside the cube also now, I'm not interested in it either. Uh, The ambiguity is the point that's where the creepiness comes from. Yeah, it's much more compelling when when all that you know is the cube, that's it. And all that, the, the characters obviously had to come from somewhere. The worst thing to do about something so sort of esoterically creepy is to give it a proper explanation and to say, oh, it's like a government thing or whatever. Yeah, that's... It, it's the same thing of you don't want to give people too good a look at a demon or a ghost or whatever because you want their mind to fill in the blanks. The scary thing is, could this be some Lovecraftian thing? Could this literally be hell, like some Jean-Paul Sartre shit? Or could this be, just as Worth says, this Kafka-esque public works project that completely just not even exploded out of people's hands, but sort of eventually just became part of the shuffle of money and paperwork? Like, Uh, I love the explanation of, then why are we here? If you wasted all your money on this, you would you would you it. admit it, it's a mistake? The and and the other smart thing is that it puts us in the it gives us as much information as the characters have. Yeah, we 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 don't have the comfort of knowing more than the characters do at any given moment. It, it puts us into their mindset. It puts us. It makes us as confused and as in the dark as as they are, and so it helps us get into their mindset, which is. Helpful when things start to escalate and they start to turn on each other. I I think that this sort of thing would make for a very compelling escape room. (laughs) You know? It would be a real physical escape room. Yeah. Well, some of the ones that people have started designing in the US particularly have become very, very physical... But there are no activity oriented too. But there are no puzzles really. Like it, it's just going through a series of rooms and trying to figure out numbers, and, and that's it. I mean, you can't have the traps in real life. But yeah, yeah, people just get you know not ethically. People just get shot at by like paintballs and stuff. 
Like, for a really it? hardcore escape room. Yeah. They pour lukewarm Fanta on people instead of acid. Yeah. It's just as annoying. But it's sort of gamified, in a sense, in, in the movie as well, because of the idea that you can trick the traps with throwing the shoe. Hmm. In fact, I think I've seen someone adapt the concept of the cube and made a game about it with a lot of the same sort of trappings. Is it a drinking game of every time Quentin's eyes look like they're going to fall out of his skull? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's a, it's a video game. But it's a very... I've j- I'm just really into the idea of it. It's a fantastic sort of idea. And it just got me thinking as to how we'd function in an escape room. Us three? Yeah, because that's sort of the energy I got from it. I don't play puzzle games. If I come to a puzzle in an RPG or something that I'm playing, I look up the solution online because I just I I'm not there for it. I'm not. It's not what I want. You know. I think I get really into. I have it. a hard enough time figuring out real life. I don't need to create additional problems to solve. I would get too invested within the narrative of the room. Like if it's one of those rooms where. Well, I feel like this would be a better conversation to have if we were talking about escape room, but I don't see that happening in 20 years. But anyway, I feel like I would just get too invested within the narrative. Like, if it's a serial killer thing, I'd be like, Help! Get me out of here! Like, I would end probably after doing that for like 10 minutes, wasting 10 minutes of the precious time. Yeah. Then I would just start touching everything. Yeah. And just being a goober. But as I was saying uh, earlier in the deep dive, if it involved maths, I'm out of luck. Game over, man. Game over, man. Mm. Game over. Me too. Uh, I'm I'm literary minded. Me me as well, yeah. You know, numerology, number minded. If we were watching this and I was like, now, if it was Pink Floyd trivia instead of prime numbers, I'm there. I'm your man. But the fact that it's prime numbers, and I don't really know what prime numbers are, there you go. Well, that really does go I, into I, how... I would just stay in the same cube the whole time, well, apparently, because it's not worth leaving. I, I, let me just read, I find a... Um, I was reading some reviews and some articles written about cube, and there was this one that I... There, there's a, a blogger that I read called... Um, his name is Tim Brayton. He... I, I like his his articles. He's 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 very smart and very funny, and I I really like the um the takes that he has on things, even if I don't always agree with them. But give me a minute here to find it. Here we go. I'm quoting from um from his review of Cube. What actually bothered me more though was the way that supposed math genius Levin had to sweat over determining prime numbers, having not apparently learned the easy trick that any even number is divisible by two and any number ending in five is divisible by five, so you don't actually have to spend half a minute factoring them. Like there's apparently a a pretty smart, easy trick to figure out what a prime number is that this math genius in the movie doesn't know. So yeah, but stressful situation. You'd crossed fi- with being in the same oh, come room with on. the bug-eyed bandit. She, if she had, if she has enough mental wherewithal to actually do these incredibly complex calculations, but but yeah, the the math stuff apparently doesn't entirely track the whole way through. Um, and, and good, it's just even more confusing for me now. You know, but that does show how confident yeah. the script is. 
Oh, it's sniffing its own farts is what's happening. I watched It's a- like I know all of these maths equations and shit. Look how smart I am. I watched an interview it's the equivalent of-, of it being about Lex Luthor from Dawn of Justice. Hey, I'm a literary genius. <laughs> the red capes are coming. <laughs> I I watched an interview with Nicole DeBoer where she who plays Levin, she admitted as much in it that apparently it doesn't track the whole way through. And she's like us. She doesn't understand what numbers do either. <laughs> So she she said in this interview, you know, that's like, that's acting. <laughs> that's There were lines on a script, bud. Mm. I just said them for money. Like, I don't know what they mean. For the uh, number illiterate of us in the audience, they, they say it with such confidence that you buy it. Yeah. Yeah. I bought it. I, I you, you don't need to it. understand the equation to actually to actually get what the prime numbers mean, you know. it's If it's a prime number... It's not a trap room. Yeah. If it isn't a yeah. prime number, then it is a trap room. Yeah, that's all you need that's to understand. That's all you need to Except get. that's a filthy lie. <laughs> it's like it's like that's the case until it's not. Yeah. Um but going back to the maze a little bit, because we don't really find out what the what the cube is, it gets to be a stand-in for a whole bunch of different things about society that the movie sort of broaches in its dialogue through the endless repetition and the dead ends that becomes kind of the point we get comparisons to the rat race of life the monotony of of modern life and and just going through the motions every day you know get up have breakfast go to work come home watch tv go to sleep you know that kind of of part of modern life that some people find difficult to wake up in your wake up in your own personal cube. Yeah. Get into your smaller cube to get it's, clean. It's not um, get into your metal cube to go to work where you sit in a cube and do cube. Yeah, I don't have a cube. I don't have a problem with any of that stuff. Uh, this might might style you, but I I enjoy patterns and and certainty. See, that's weird because you hate puzzles in video games. Oh yeah, but I also um. I don't like figuring it out. I just like always knowing, you know? It's He's the Riddler. I ha- the No, Riddler. I'm not. I'm, I don't like riddles. I like certainty. I don't like ambiguity at all. You know, that's He's why I've man. come up with this obscenely complicated way of figuring out what movies I'm going to watch for the next 10 years of my life. That's not something someone who just likes living by the spur of the moment does. That's something that a lunatic who likes rules and structure does. I've got no problem with the rat race. I like the comfort of knowing that I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to do this and then I'm going to go to bed. I don't need to have to wonder whether what I'm going to be doing three three days from now. I already know. Anyways. How would you fare in the cube? If you poorly. Would, poorly. He would fare poorly in the cube. He would lose his mind in the second cube. I, I, I never... See, you never know what you're going to be like in it's the whole in situations like mm. that you never you never know what you're going to be like in yeah. a crisis i i like to think that i have a very strict moral center like there are a lot of a lot of red lines for me that i like to think that i wouldn't be able to cross because further and beyond the the immediate danger of the situation I would also, I think, be taking into consideration, well, I can't just go around and do whatever it takes because I've got to live with myself if I ever get out of here, you know? True. Like, that that, that would be a real big part of it for me. Um, but I, I also kind of get the impression that 
And again, there's no real way of knowing, but I would very quickly be like, well, there's a very good chance I'll die here. There's a very good chance I'm not. I won't. Who knows? I'll just give it my best shot. And if it if it ends up being the end, you know, we'll we'll go with it. And I feel like... And you're like, I watched Cube, life will spend. Well, maybe, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit, but I feel like I would try and be a calming presence like i would try and a mediator try and be the mediator between all of these especially with the people the other people who are in cube um (laughs) like i feel like needed a mediator desperately yeah i feel like i would end up being being levin maybe levin would be the closest one but not the math stuff like i would need someone else to take care of that but like oh yeah and quinton isn't going to come up next to you and wake you up and be like we should be together yeah it's maths but but um, there would, yeah, there's just a level of, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I'd lose my mind very quickly. Like it's always, it always is sort of thinking, it, it was, it's interesting to think about how you would do in those sort of situations. Like I've often thought about what I'd do in a zombie apocalypse. Um, you know, there's, there's part of me that's like, I, th- I think it would end up being like, are there people I'm with or am I alone? Like that's the difference. If I end up in alone. In a zombie apocalypse, I would die very quickly. If, see that this is the thing about me also is that I would not I have this thing where uh, I don't want to get too personal about it but th- th- there have been enough things in my own life not not life-threatening things but problems in my own life that I've had to really fight through and come to a and earn the place that I am in my own life at the moment. Um, that I, I I don't see myself as the kind of person who would just give up. I, I oh. see myself as the kind of person who would just keep keep going for as long as I can. And if, if the end comes, then the end comes. But like like if I found myself alone, for instance, I've often thought that the thing that I would probably do is I would just start walking and see how far I could get, you know? Mm. Find a safe place to sleep at night, but just keep walking and try and find something out there. But... Don't head to Bunnings. That's a trick. But I can't... Everyone will go to Bunnings. But I, I can't see myself sitting under a tree and, you know, drinking myself to death. No. I, yeah. I, there's just something about my own history that's like, I will keep going until I drop. Oh, yeah, same. Yeah. I think I would stick to the first room. Yeah, absolutely. Simply because I'm just thinking, you know for a fact that room doesn't have traps. No. I'm thinking, one, I'm safe here. Two, whoever put us in here, be it an alien or a person, most likely doesn't want to go further into the cube. Well, they would. Certainly, they would just put you in the cube, not turn on the shifting thing. You're kind of fulfilling their purpose by going anywhere. Like, that's pretty obvious. It's pretty obvious to start off with that this is a rat maze. So you're fulfilling their purpose by trying to get out of there. And also you're like, well, if anyone is... That's the thing that they always tell you, where if you get lost in the woods or you get stranded somewhere, the best thing that you can do, if you can, is to stay in the one place because that's where people will go. Yeah. It makes it easier for people to find you. But, But also at the same time, if there were like five other people and they're like... I'm going, like, we're all going. You can stay here by yourself if you want and just sit here for days until you die of dehydration, but we're going to try and get out of here. I feel like I'd tag along with those people. Just, I, I don't, like, if the, if the option was, like, trying to get out of there with company or just sitting alone in this strange place 
for days on end in the off chance that someone will come and rescue me before I, you know, die a horrible death by dehydration uh, all by myself, you know, having hallucinations, you know, seems more yeah, appealing to me. Yeah, you don't know who else is... You don't know who else is gonna you're gonna come across. Yeah, better the devil you know. Let's talk about some of the characters. All right, <laughs> Quentin. So Quentin. Okay, first we're gonna have to talk about the character of Quentin. I don't think he's a cop. I think that's bullshit. He's a nutcase. I think he's full of shit. Well, let me let me just start off with something interesting about him that the movie shows us but never ever addresses, which is when he is introduced climbing into the cube that uh is it worth is in unconscious at the beginning he already has blood on his hands yeah that's never addressed or explained but we kind of get when you think about it in retrospect knowing the direction that his character goes we're kind of left to wonder whether maybe these are the first people he's encountered or not Mm. probably not whether he's already gone through this whole cycle Um, I I didn't really get into it in um, in my discussion of Cube Two, but there is a character in Cube Two who has survived in the cube for a long, long time by consuming the other occupants of the cube. That he will come across a stranger and he's so hungry that he will kill and then eat that person. So there is kind of my man witch. So there is kind of a within the Cube franchise. There is kind of Kind of, there's precedent. There's, there's a precedent for someone lasting for quite a long time in there. Um, I'm not sure how the science of that stacks up. If you know, I mean, I suppose we are like seventy percent water, but how are you supposed to get that far if you're just consuming a person that and not water? And and anyways, redundant notion here. He could have been in there for for longer, and I think that's interesting as as an idea. And I kind of wonder if whether that goes any any distance to explaining the deranged performance of Morris Dean Wint as Quentin, whether that is something that he's clocked onto and he's playing a character that is unstable from the very beginning. I'm not sure I can go that far to excusing his, his performance in that sense because, but, but it is, if you read it in that way, it is kind of interesting yeah, I suppose you're right about that. However, I can I can deal with a heightened performance. I I've done my fair share, but this is like too much, way too much. It's extremely over the top. Oh yeah. It it's it's not and not good over the top either. It's it sounds like a community theater performance. It sounds amateurish and you just don't buy that this is a character that exists. And you certainly don't buy that all of these other people wouldn't immediately look at him and say, oh, note to self, watch out for that guy. <laughs> I mean... Don't, it, don't stay in the same cube as this bloke for too long. It, it's pretty obvious from the start that this guy's not all there anymore. It, and, oh. it's, and, it, and that is solely through the performance. Like, the script doesn't try and tell us that he's losing it until later on. But Morris Dean Wint, from the very beginning, is playing it as a guy who's, you know, a, a, a few cards short of a deck. Listen to me, woman. Every day I mop up after your bleeding heart. The only reason you even exist is because I keep you! Sticking your nose up other people's assholes, 
sniffing their business. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, that's what really bothers me with the performance. I see where he's going with it. I understand the method and the concept. The delivery leaves a lot to be desired. It's very bug-eyed, very sort of whisper-shouty in that way that you only see mad characters do. But he's also very passive-aggressive sometimes. Yeah, he's constantly hostile. And I understand he is the antagonist character, but still... I mean, come on, we're stuck in a cube together. Let's sit down, let's have a laugh. And, hey? and, and Morris gets way, he gets sweaty before anyone else does. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, like, starts sweaty. Yeah. Everyone gets there, but he's going full tilt the whole time. Yeah. And if he paired it back a bit. You see, acting is all about tension hmm. and getting close to that sort of thing. If you go too hard into one direction and don't hold something back, it's going to go over the you top can't, and become silly. You can't give. You can't just play it as a hundred and ten percent. You've got to leave human nature there as well. Like yeah, he's not exactly. acting like a human. He's acting like like I don't even I don't even know. He's acting like uh, rabid animal basically like that's what the performance is he's he's just going so so far into aggression and you know uh, madness and his version of madness is so basic and consists of him frowning and looking like this all the time with his eyes sticking out of his head like he's you know it's it's just not a good performance, and and of course there's the ranting and the 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 shoving of people, and of course he's the one that that instantly starts picking on Kazan when they find him. This largely non-verbal, uh, it it it's I I suppose it's never really stated, but we will learn later on that he has been lobotomized later on in the series that he has been lobotomized. Right. Um, and he is largely non-verbal. Uh. And, if, and heavily autistic. Well, no. Well, that's that. That's okay. that's clearly the Without intention. Without the context of the, that's what prequel. this movie is yeah. getting at. Yes, that's that's clearly the intention with this first movie. Yes, they will they will go and um, in Cube Zero, the prequel, they retcon that and they make it that if you actually make it out of the cube, then they just catch you, lobotomize you, and put you back in. So Kazan is someone who's made it out of the cube. And to prevent him from Before. ratting on anyone, they've lobotomized him and just chucked him back in. That's how he knows all of the stuff about the numbers, too. Is like, he's gone through it all before, and he remembers a lot of it. That's why he's got that thing about the red rooms. Yeah. So, and and also, um, yeah, yeah. That. So good. Uh, with, with Kazan, you see, it's complicated. I think the idea of the character's okay... The, the the actor doesn't go too far, I think. He has a... He's not overdoing it. He he doesn't turn it into an offensive caricature. No, he's no, not no. playing simple Jack. He, he raises his presence as someone who has been, as you say, lobotomized, or in the context of the first film, someone with a disability. It raises the stakes. It does. And it also shows the, the, the utter indiscriminate nature... 
of the cube. It, it furthers the deterioration of the group dynamic as well. That Quentin is mm. instantly the guy that is like, oh, we got to leave this guy behind. He's a danger. Um, you know, oh, now we got to take care of this guy. Like, he, he's instantly really an asshole about it. He, he breaks out the R word to call Kazan. And then on the other, the other side, you've got really what is, for the first half of the movie, his, his arch nemesis within the cube, the character of Holloway, who is a nurse in real life outside of the cube doctor a doctor um also conspiracy theorist yes and she she being a, a medical professional is very caring for kazan and tries to help him through it and really takes the lead on helping him around and 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 it's kazan's presence ultimately that causes quentin to totally it doesn't cause his deterioration that's clearly already happening before that but it's 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 what really reveals his deterioration for the rest of the group. It, it, it's the, 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 the crisis point that really blows everything up. Because you'll get that, that pretty intense scene where they're going through the trap room where the trap is all of these spikes that are activated through sound. And so they need to be very, very quiet. Um, and that's not great for Kazan because he's nonverbal, but he... he He's non-verbal in that he doesn't speak in in complete sentences or have conversations or anything, but he is verbal in the sense that he will make noises and he will occasionally say words or 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 fractions of sentences. And so that's you know the real tension is like getting him through that room um, because he it's not clear to us really whether he understands what exactly is happening around him. But then of course, just as everyone else goes through and Quentin is the last one through Kazan finally slips and makes a noise and Quentin just manages to get through before all the spikes get him and that's the point where he really starts to get aggressive with Kazan he bashes him up against the wall Holloway steps in and then we get that whole really great like argument scene between them where Holloway really starts to take him apart no wonder your wife left you Like, like only a doctor could. Yeah, but but like the, the the no wonder your your wife left you all that anger, and then she like looks at Levin and says, and a and a predilection for young girls, and and that's it's it's this mounting, it's it's the moment I feel where really the whole group realizes who Quentin is and that he is probably a danger. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it is so satisfying for us as the audience too because. We've had it up to here with Quentin at this point. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it's just, it, it's good to see him taken apart like that. Yeah. Even if it does yeah. cause Holloway, Holloway's death later on. He, he, like, she, she gets the, the um, scar, save me <laughs> scene. Yeah. Long live the king. Well, it's not even that. It's like he looks like he's struggling, then nothing. Just staring forward, just drops her. You know who would have been very good in that role? The role of Quentin? Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, He knows how to get up to the edge. Yeah. Mm. I don't don't know, Forrest Whitaker, to me, kind of seems a little more gentle. 
than what Quentin needs. I, I, no, I don't know. I actually know. I, I agree with that because I actually think that that gentleness could actually really work in the early goings when you're when the movie's trying to convince you that he's he's a good guy. That yeah, yeah. yeah. I've come around on that just in in that thirty seconds span. And it and it, that the, it's what made me think of first Whitaker in the role is that the moment when he's just about to drop her, yeah. how his face just goes dead. Yeah, like with Forrest Whitaker doing that. That would be a real oh shit moment. This was not going to get Forrest Whitaker though. Um, it, this seems like a decent way of moving on to some talk about some of the technical limitations that this movie had to work with. It, it is ingenious as a film because tech-wise, it, it just doesn't require much. It is a single set, you know. There aren't multiple cubes. It's the same cube that they're climbing in. It's it's all the one set the whole way through. It's just... You change the colour of the lights. They change the colour of the lights. They, they put gel packs over the lights to change the colours of it. And it's just the way that they shoot it and edit it together that it looks like they're moving from one cube to another when it's the same set the whole way through. And it was made for... And, and it's just these very limited cast on this one set. And it was made for a really small amount of money. Let me just find here. 365000 Canadian dollars, you know. There are there are halfway decent houses that cost more than that nowadays. And, and that's what this movie was made from. Like, that's a really smart... That's smart indie filmmaking. Like, they've identified their own limitations. And rather than pushing against them they've worked with them and yeah. worked around them in such a really interesting way and one has to wonder i suppose what came first did they have this idea then set out to make it or did they look for a a cool movie to make and then come up with well what's a movie we can make on one set with six cast members that's also yeah. why i suppose quentin's so not very good is they can't really afford the greatest of actors i mean yeah there are a couple of people here that I recognize. David Hewlett, um, who plays Worth, is from... Um, he's done a lot of Stargate stuff over the years. Uh, Nicole DeBoer, other than this, was on one season of a Star Trek show as a regular. Um, and the guy at the very start got a cheer from me. The the cube man himself, who gets... Julian Richings. Julian Richings, who gets turned into... Uh, a whole cubes. It gets turned into cubes. Yes, um, Resident Evil, the first Resident Evil movie, pretty much just ripped this that straight off from Cube. That it did it so much. Worse. All of this piano razor wire, whatever, goes through Julian Richings uh, in a grid formation, and he just crumbles, to, squelches to the ground rather in these little like meat cube sized chunks. chunks. Like, like, and it's brilliant. Like dog food, almost. But Julian, and it looks great. Julian Richings is an actor that I really love, and I always love when he yeah. turns up in things. He's in Supernatural as Death. He plays Death. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Have you seen? I those? love the scene where he rocks up in his car, and it's yeah. underscored by the song "Oh Death." Mm. That he is just commands such a powerful. In that mood. scene, he just commands power. Yeah. Yeah. He commands attention, and like the way that he plays it too. Whenever he's doing his interactions with either of the brothers in Supernatural. They're, they're just totally unfazed. Like, he has this great, great line in, in that first episode where um, he says something like, uh, he doesn't remember 
who came first, him or God, but in the end it won't matter, he'll reap him too. Like Yeah, yeah, and then it's like I will be there when it ends. Yeah. When it all ends. We'll patch in the audio, but I believe he says something more along the lines of It's one little planet, one tiny solar system, and a galaxy that's barely out of its diapers. I'm old, Dean. Very old. So I invite you to contemplate how insignificant I find you. I gotta ask. How old are you? As old as God. Maybe older. Neither of us can remember anymore. Life, death, chicken, egg. Regardless, at the end, I reap him too. God? You'll reap God? Oh, yes. God will die too, Dean. It's it's a great little yeah. um little showcase for Julian Enrichings. Yeah. yeah. He has a lot and of he, he, talent. Yeah, he, he also plays the character of Otto on Kingdom Hospital. He's in a lot of he's things. He's in a yeah. lot of stuff. He's, he's in a lot of things. He's in American Gods, yeah, he, I think, he, in a small part. He has a really interesting face as well. He does. Um, Very evocative. He's also the, in the, the movie that, fact that... He's also in the movie that we'll be talking about next week. Yeah, the simple fact <laughs> yeah. that he's nev- that he's not in, in either of the Blade Runner films is a sin. That's weird. Because he's, he's got he... a Blade Runner face. Like, I suppose if we're talking about the opening scene, let's talk about some of the practical effects. Yeah. The the cubing scene, for example, right at the top. I feel like, actually, I don't like that. I, I don't really like the cube the cubing scene at the start because I feel like it's kind of out of tone with the rest of the movie. This is not a movie that's really about shock violence and gore. Um, We get bits and pieces of it, but they're almost matter of fact. Like the, the only thing that really comes close in the, the body of the film is when the, the acid goes in that guy's face and it gets his face eaten away. And I feel like it's sort of a little bit like this movie is so cerebral and intellectual and contemplative about ideas and it's creating the tension and the horror out of out of paranoia and claustrophobia that when the movie does sort of stop and throws gore at you, it feels out of place and it feels almost like a... a a sop to marketers like like it feels to me that that opening scene specifically like someone was really really worried that people would get bored if they just opened up in a cube and had people talking for 30 minutes before anything violent happened mm. yeah that's probably probably is the case but i see a lot of that stuff as possible limitations that they're working with they weren't able to go too crazy with the stuff so they had to be a bit more Restrictive with the traps. The the acid thing, the flamethrower thing. The probably the most complicated one is all the spikes coming out of the walls in the silence room. Yeah. Well that's just CGI spikes. Yeah, but that's CGI, but what that's what I'm saying. It's like that's probably the most complex trap. There's there's all and this isn't a trap, but it is certainly the most effect heavy moment of the film is the sequence with Holloway hanging over the edge of the cube yeah. between the gap between the cube structure and the, the shell that is the exit. Um, yeah. 
that's all digital and it, it creates a you, you see the budget limitations there i mean they're right there for you to see it that end that that segment towards the end where they're they're fighting as they try and exit the cube it brought to mind to me like a really particularly grim episode of an early 2000s sci-fi original series like it has that kind yeah. of uh we did this on the cheap in a studio kind of look to it 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 created it has that kind of very specific kind of lighting do you know what i mean yeah yeah i definitely agree it has that the cgi has that same sheen on it yeah Mm. or lack of sheen but but for the most part it's a really professionally done movie and um natalie is a director who has moved on to some pretty interesting things let me just pull up his resume here he he directed a movie you guys talked about a while back in the tall grass uh that was that was him that makes perfect sense but he does a lot of high profile television now he's directed episodes of lock and key he's directed uh westworld episodes lost in space american gods the strain luke cage wayward pines hannibal orphan black but he's also directed that that movie splice um from about a decade ago with Adrian Brody and uh, it was basically species with a creative monster. Uh, he directed and, and he is, he is working with Jonathan Nolan um, to direct the upcoming Amazon television series adaptation of that William Gibson novel, the peripheral. So he's a guy that has, has a lot of ideas and has been recognized by the industry for what he was able to do there with Cube. He's also one of the directors of a segment of um, the ABCs of Death 2. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I've never God, seen I like either those of those movies. I've never seen either of those movies. I kind of don't have the... Because the whole idea of it... The whole idea of those movies, isn't it, is that like they're like 26 short films with... Yeah. Each based on... A, each inspired by a letter of the alphabet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. By a specific word. Yeah. Oh, they're fascinating. But that's just us. We love anthology We love anthology things. Stuff. We go mad for them. <laughs> but, I, but I'm I sorry. Say- I'm sorry. I just... I, I have this habit sometimes where when I'm trying to figure out what kind of a movie something is, I will go into the IMDb Parents Guide to just see a few of the articles just to because I'm trying to get an idea of the tone. I'd like to... Yeah. I'd like to read you the first item on the ABCs of Death 2 parents guide yep go for it a woman deals with a giant fleshy penis creature depicted mostly realistically and larger than a human thigh yep yep <laughs> yep all right that happens in it what what's the uh in the parents guide for cube um oh that could be a fun segment actually <laughs> what are the what are the parents guide items for the movies that we're talking about yeah why not it's good fun um sometimes they get wild sex and nudity mild it's all the stuff huh? to do with Quentin and Levin. Mm-hmm. Um, violence and gore. A man is sliced up into cubes and is seen falling apart. All of his insides are visible. Blood is briefly shown. A woman. Eh, it's not briefly shown. A woman is slapped. A man is beaten up twice. He is beaten with a shoe once. He dies at the end <laughs> of the movie. <laughs> but that's got nothing to do with the shoe. Uh, yeah, violence and gore, severe. Profanity, moderate. 26 uses of the word fuck. Some uses of shit, some uses of asshole, and some uses of damn. I I just like to picture like who it is there that's sitting there with 
their little notepad as they watch movies going, you know, all right, that's one fuck, that's two fucks, that's three fucks. <laughs> like, I'm, I've got to tally this all up. The parents need to know. I need, like, you know, they need to know exactly the number that is here. <laughs> like, that's kind. that's got to be kind of depressing, right? Just sitting there watching a movie and counting how many different yeah. instances of swear words there are. How many How many users of the word damn? It doesn't say. that This person has only counted the number of F words. Which is... 26. You see, 25, you know, that I can allow, that I'm fine with, 26. It's that whole bullshit that the MPAA does in America where you're allowed to have one F word in a PG-13 movie, but anything yeah. more than that, it instantly goes, ah, like, that's stupid. Like, John's, it, John's favorite one of those was in Dark Phoenix. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's he's told that me that part. a lot of times here. Um, the... But it's it's just not consistent, you know. I would agree with it. I, I I could understand it. Let's say I would understand it. I wouldn't agree with it if they said, "Look, you just can't have an F word in a PG thirteen movie." Kids might be going to see this. Fair it, you just can't. I'd be like, "All right, that's pretty." You know, uh, that's fair. It's it's. I don't agree with it. I think it's kind of ridiculous, um, hand wringing over something that's not really that important. But yeah. fair enough. It's consistent. I know, but, like, fair enough. but the idea that you could that you have one F word, but Two F words, like, oh, no, that will corrupt a child's mind. The one F word they can deal with. But even if you just had, if someone say the, the two of them back to front, you know, it's not like the impact is any less. It's, no. or any more. I mean, it's just, it's just the simple the presence. still powered, eh? Yeah. Like, I just, I don't, I don't get it. I would like to see a movie sometime that worked with that. Like, some movie about filmmakers that, um... Did that you like if you had a PG thirteen movie about the creation of movies that was like so you're saying we can only have one fuck in the movie right yeah yeah and it can't be in a sexual context oh that seems pretty stupid well what if we what if we you know have different variations of it no you can't have different variations of it what if what if there was a pause right and 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 there was there was a pause and then someone else said something and then then it was filmed so you had someone going far. And then cut to another scene, and someone said "k," you know, something like that. And then they said, "Oh no, I'm not sure if you could do that. We'll have to check that." Uh, just cut all that. That's stupid. I don't like it. Cut it. I don't like what I was, what I did there. I'm I'm having a, I'm having a real rough time with this episode, guys. I'm having a real rough time with this episode. I'm not happy with how I'm doing here. That made sense. It made sense. Yes. I liked where you were going. Well, maybe just edit but, it yeah. down a little bit. It went on too long. I do think this is sort of sort. It's a fun segment idea uh, the imdb yeah. family guide alcohol drugs and smoking none holloway says she quitted smoking but needs to smoke in the cube to keep herself busy frightening and intense sequences intense scenes severe mm. Mm. i dare Tense, okay yes i dare you to look at what the one for the lighthouse <laughs> i dare you i kind of don't want to because i feel like that will be automatic spoilers There's spoilers yeah it is anyway that so, movie gets rough. I kind of think we've reached the end of our discussion about Cube. If there's anything else anyone wants to talk about. Okay, I've got something. More. This is more about like the concept of the Cube, and I guess, I guess, has more relevance to Hypercube. Have do you? Are you familiar with the whole monkeys and typewriters thing? Yeah, the idea that if you have the- a thousand monkeys in a room. Just typing, you know, statistically, one day they'll get all of the letters in a row and it'll be Shakespeare. Yeah, sort of that idea of infinity and 
reality and sort of it's sort of a kabbalistic kind of philosophy philosophy the conception of eternity yeah are you familiar with the short story the library of babel by louis by, by jorge louis borges no so it's this idea that there's the universe is this library library where every room is sort of hexagonal and it's it sort of goes on ad infinitum and every and the shelves are stacked with books each book with 26 letters being used in them and it's all to do with this in every possible permutation every that possible could permutation have. of that so there is a book somewhere in the library that categorizes every book in it there's a book that describes the exact you know arc of your life there's a book that is basically writing that written has written down what we're saying right now yeah that sort of idea of infinity and all of that within the short story the library of babel they the writer borges talks about cultures that have grown within the library so there are some librarians who just burn books and throw them off the edge of, you know, the ring, where, like, the ring that they're in, because they're heretical and everything. There are because others who worship nonsense. The others who worship nonsense, and some who s- desperately search for their the book that will explain the purpose of the library. I believe that it would be so brilliant to use the concept of sort of this it, the potentially infinite cube this the tesseract as it is in hypercube and see how a culture forms within it see what kind of faith systems may be born within such a strict isolated atmosphere and I, that kind of happens with quentin at a point he starts losing it and start seeing the cube as this esoteric there's so much potential with this idea the fact that the cube can potentially be infinite that you could do anthology movie after anthology movie or franchise after franchise of just different groups of people potentially even within the same cube but they never reach each other because the cube is so infinite. I'd like to see see uh, Natalie make another cube movie. Yeah. With the sort of tips I mean, and tricks he's... They've been saying... I think it was 2015 they announced that they were doing a reboot of the series, but that seems to have been put on hold or cancelled. There's been really nothing so, out Yeah, about something it, but... I think was happening in 2018 with Lionsgate and nothing's really moved about it since, but... There's so much potential with that that infinity. The fact that you could go into the cube and if you're moving around, you could never find the exit, even if it is just 47 rooms across, 47 rooms because the, up. Because, because of how it moves. You could potentially walk in circles forever and die without finding the exit. And that is fascinating to me. Because the cubes room the cubes mini cubes move around. Yeah. Which causes a lot of stress for the characters. And 
you know me, I like, I love cosmic horror. I think it is some of the most terrifying stuff there. And you, that's what's such, that's why it's such a shame that the prequel kind of ruins that. I'm not sure there's much it gives cosmic too much horror of an explanation. in Cube, though. No, but it can, it could be. The the cosmic horror the of the nothingness yeah. of bureaucracy. Sort of, it's a human-made cosmic horror. It's not the outside nothing being so large and massive yeah. that it utterly just dwarfs people. But the philosophical bureaucracy, the idea of just order piling on top of itself crushes people and makes them so small that it might as well be a giant tentacled creature from the nothing lands. It's that kind of idea that is so fascinating that I wish that they were able to focus on a little bit more. Yeah, they do talk about the sort of way that it's all cogs in a machine. Uh, Quentin is apparently a police officer. I don't really think he is. I think that's complete bullshit on his part. But if he is a cop, he's a part of the system. The, uh, what's his name? The guy who helped... Worth. Why do I keep forgetting his name? He's part of the system because he created the Outer Shell. Helped design the Outer Shell. Yeah, he helped design the Outer Shell. The Doctor, she is a part of the system because she treats people she helps keep them alive when otherwise they would die. And also conspiracy conspiracy theories themselves are part of the system. Yeah. And you've got... What's her name? Levin. Levin. I should remember all of their names because they're all named after prisons. But her purpose is she's a mathematician. She is inches away from becoming worth. Mm. Designing something with her mathematical genius to be a part of the cube. Mm. Everything leads inexorably towards the same end within this universe. Everything is in service of the cube. Yeah. I like the fact he found out like three months before he ended up in the cube what the pe- what people were doing with the cube. And he wasn't even thrown in there to cover it up. His number probably just came up randomly and he ended up in there. With the dispassionate eye, the, the dispassionate eye of the computer fell on him and it's like, him, put him the, in. It, it's the nihilism they talk about in the movie. Why the cube? Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why us? It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. At the end of the... It's like, they weren't put in there so they could escape. That's the entire point. If if they were put in there to escape, why would they put them in there with someone as mentally unhinged as Quentin? If the purpose was finding... Seeing if people could escape this cube, it's not. The purpose can't possibly be a social experiment, because it flies past all of the ethics necessary for that. Even then, what would you be testing? It's, exactly. What would you be you're, testing you're, that you're you couldn't assu- test in any other situation? You're assuming also that, that they knew that Quentin was unstable. I mean, assume for the moment that he's telling the truth. It could just be that they're putting all of... That he is a cop. That It could just be that they're putting all of these different personality types into this maze and, and testing to see how they all react under that kind of pressure. Yeah, but what... what, what? 
could you extrapolate from the data gained from the cube, if it is a social experiment, that you couldn't get from any number of cheaper, more cost-effective, more ethical, you know... I don't know. In most scientific it. experiments, I'm pretty sure that there is no actual danger of death. You know, that adds a different element to it. There is the element of the unknown, the fact that they didn't sign on for something, the fact that they are just abducted and put in like... There are elements here that, I mean, I'm, there's there's unique elements to the cube system that can't be replicated elsewhere. Yes, but that goes past social sciences and those sorts of questions, what could death be a driver for? You can use, if if we're talking about sociology, you could look at sort of philosophical reasoning. You could look at examples where situations like this happened before. There are easier ways to do it. I truly believe... But you can't record it and watch it in real time. You guys are falling into the hole that the cube wants you to fall into. Right. You're it's moving to, forward when time, you should just stay still. It's time, to, it's time to pull the plug on this one, I think, guys. It doesn't it's time, matter. It's time to pull the plug. It never did. <sighs> Thinking about it. All right, we're done. It's okay. This has not been a great episode, has it, guys? I think it's been pretty good. I think it's been pretty I good. I think we've been very manic. Before I had weird moments. So, Lawson, what was your? who's your MVP and what was your favorite team? Uh, in terms of my MVP, I'm going to have to go to direct to the director, to is Vincenzo Natale. Uh, i got to give it to him because I sure as hell can't give it to any of the actors. Um, it, it really is technically quite masterful. The fact that he's dealing with such a limited set of things at his disposal and, and he manages to create this big, sprawling, conceptual story with with such an interesting scope and scale to it with one set and a handful of actors and you know three hundred twenty five thousand dollars i mean just just think about that i mean three hundred twenty five thousand dollars you know people can anyone could really any any adult with a with a reasonable credit rating could get a three hundred twenty five thousand dollar bank loan and and make the movie if they had enough stuff in place like this isn't a studio thing this isn't a prohibitively expensive thing this is this is something that has been put together really cheaply and it's done with a a level of professionalism and a level of technical adroitness that i i really appreciated in terms of my favorite scene or sequence it's got to be the bit just after the 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 room where they've got to keep quiet when hollingway really turns on Quentin finally and yeah. they get that that argument between the two of them that's just so satisfying and it really is it, it it sort of sums up the movie's real drama the the pressure cooker of the cube creating these interpersonal problems and, and dynamics between the characters and, and that that is one of the most fiery and one of the most interesting to watch so yeah I've got to give it to that scene how about you Sean yeah for me I think the production designers for this because the cube looks fantastic and the simple fact that they were able to wring so many things out of what is apparently just one set is just brilliant the the idea behind that is so cost effective that it boggles the mind as to why more people don't use this kind of idea because it allows you to also on a more artistic standpoint really let the acting and script, you know, 
work for itself, which it doesn't necessarily do too much in this film. I like bottle episode things, and this is a movie-long bottle episode. Uh, I think, and I think my favorite part of this movie is the huge rant that Worth goes on. How he's talking about the unchained and unfettered bureaucracy of one person does one thing somewhere, they don't know what it's for. Another person does another thing somewhere, they don't know what it's for. And it just ends up being collated and coalesced into this unfeeling, immutable thing that just kind of exists beyond anyone's reasoning or wanting it to exist in the first place. It's just a thing that exists to get people to work for no reason, just to keep the economy going, it seems. And I just love the whole Kafka-esque nature of that. It's everyone is trapped by the nature of this thing. The, The cube stands for so many things as well. It's fascinating, and I love that scene. I think it's the best written part of the script. My MVP would have to go to the cinematographer, Derek Rogers. The cinematographer really helps each room feel like a different room. Yes, a lot of that comes down to director, but the way it's shot makes it feel like progress, even when it's really not. They're just crawling through a hole into the same room every single time. And the, the the dynamism of it, how dynamic. Yeah. The it always feels like things is. are moving. It feels like progress. And that could have not worked out so well. And how trippy some of the bits are. Yeah. Like if if the cinematography was lacking, then it would feel too flat. And also it it sort of goes on the edge of being dispassionate and emotional cinematography. Well, yeah, it it throws the line between dispassionate, analytical, and putting him in the shoes of someone else who's there. Yeah. It's that same sort of... It's that interplay, that tension. Yeah. My favorite scene would have to be the... When they're going through the room with the audio trigger trap. Yeah. Just the tension of it, the... I'll say that again. Just the tension of it... The sound design of the silence, and you can hear every little thing, especially like the bit where Kazan climbs down the wrong side of it, and then he's walking across, then you hear his foot get caught on the hatch at the on the floor, and it just moves a bit. Mm. That tension is very, very good. And it, again, Kazan makes a sound mm-hmm. at the end of the sequence, which means that yeah, the the, the lunatic has to get out of there very quickly. It's just a very well-constructed, intense scene, and I appreciate stuff like that. Anything that utilizes sound, I always find quite Silence fascinating. Silence is uh, an often unused tool in films, and it's always great when someone is put in a situation where there's no music, and everyone is trying to be as silent as humanly possible. And in a, in a sort of structure like The Cube... You can imagine sound-triggered stuff Yeah, w- would be the case. It just makes sense. So, uh, Lawson, what have we got next week? Next week we will be doing a more traditionally horror-based thing. We will be returning to the slasher genre with Urban Legend, the Scream offspring that was getting a lot of traction in, in the late 90s as everyone and their dog tried to make a a 
teen slasher movie starring the the stars of some teen soap opera that was on TV at the time. You know, throw a few of them in, get the young crowd in. That seemed to be the the, the plan at the time. But Urban Legend is available for streaming, for purchase or rental on YouTube and Apple stores if anyone is interested and would like to watch along at home. And also Robert England. Yeah, which is always fun to see him. Of course, the, it's the, that's the not premier a thing. teen idol of the night is Robert England. Oh, yeah. Yes. Teen heartthrob Robert England. Do you know, Robert England, he does stalk teenagers' dreams. Anyway, so you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy County. You can find John and I at On the Bright Side. You can also reach us through our Twitter. And all of those links are in the description, wherever it appears on your podcast app of choice. Comment, rate, subscribe, share it with your friends. Each of those activities adds to visibility. Uh, Comments, most of all, that I've been able to research, because it shows audience engagement. And also, we just... We do want to know what you guys think about it, so do please comment. If there are any things that you think we can change or do better, do tell us, because much like the cube, this is an ever-growing thing. So we want to get feedback from our audience. Yeah, so... Hope that doesn't sound like begging. It sounded a bit too aggressive, I think. Yeah, it it did have kind of a tinge of, come on, people, we say this every week, what are you doing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> kind of. How many episodes are we at now? Uh, this would be 47. 47, and we've got one comment. So, I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis. I would go mad in the queue, 100%. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to last. I'd do what you were doing. I'd go forward, but I'd lose it. Not as violently, but I'd, I'd stop basically. We can trap you.